All right. Uh, good morning. Let's uh, open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. We'll get there in a moment. Uh, this morning I saw a news feed that said uh, that snowplowers are busier in the snowstorms. It's that sort of cutting-edge uh, news information that I think is, you know, what makes the news organization so valuable to us. Uh, we don't need that sort of revelation, but uh, the book of Revelation is about disclosing things that are not obvious. Uh, we, we don't need Captain Obvious to tell us that, uh, that when the snow falls, you need to plow it or shovel it. We get it. What we need, though, is a disclosure of things when life is impossibly difficult and we need to know that God is real. Um, in the ancient world, in Rome, uh, there would, in the Roman Empire, and of which uh, the book of Revelation is written to Christians living in this empire, uh, there is a very real tension between sort of two realities. The one is the physical present reality of, of empires and persecution and uh, various gods and people and uh, very real uh, emperors who mean very real harm for Christians who are seeking to follow Christ. There's the very real tension of these are uh, mighty people who are quite powerful who go so far as to claim themselves gods, and then the sort of things that... Uh, so that's the very real tension. And what, what we need disclosed is, is God in control? What we need disclosed and revealed is, does, does God still care? And, and what we need to know really clearly that's not obvious in front of us is when all of the posturing and all of the power is bearing down on its world, is Jesus still king? There is a powerful moment in the Gospel of Mark that we can sort of hurry through. And I just want to take a moment to look at what's going on in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8. It, uh, about halfway through, you see uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples about... Uh, having fed the thousands of people, having just fed the 4,000 people, the disciples are not understanding, and it's, uh, it's obvious that they aren't getting it. And Jesus, he asked them a question. Do you guys not understand? And then he starts outlining it and saying, okay, how many, how many loaves were left? And he's, they're like, well, there were 12. And he's, he's saying, guys, don't you get it? And he's scratching his head at them. He's like, do you not yet understand that I am bringing something for you, God's people, that I am the Messiah? Do you not yet get it? And then they said, how many fish are left? Well, there's seven. There's seven of them left. And he's like, are you guys not getting that I am the, uh, a, a part of creation, that I, am, I was there with creation, that I am making all things new? Are you not yet seeing all of this? Then it, uh, then it goes on, and I think Mark strategically places this story right after this sort of interaction where Jesus is like, do you guys not yet know? And then he says, do you guys not yet see? 
he tells a story of when Jesus healed a blind man. And Jesus, he puts his hands on the blind man and he, and he wipes his eyes. And, and you'll remember the story because he opens his eyes and he sees people. He says, I see people, but what do they look like? Trees. All right. Yeah, they, they look like trees. How a blind guy know, knows what people and trees look like, I don't know. Maybe he wasn't always blind. I've always scratched my head at that. But the story serves a purpose. He says, do you not yet see? And so Jesus is like, okay, we're just going to need to do this one more time. And then he sees and he celebrates. And he's like, then Jesus says, don't go tell anybody. And of course, they usually blab about it. And then the next moment in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8 is the interaction. So we have, what, what, are, what do we know about Jesus? Do you guys not yet understand? Do you not yet see? And then Jesus says, what are people saying about me? What is it that you're hearing? And they say, well, some say Elijah, some say a prophet. Well, who do you say I am? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah. What I have found in my own walk and in interacting with Christians is we need these disclosures and these reminders of what we know, of what we see, and what we hear about Jesus and Scripture. That it is so easy in the midst and struggles of our life to remind, uh, that we forget what it is we know and what it is we see and hear about who Jesus Christ is. And the clear message of Scripture is that Jesus is our Lord, our Savior, and is our King. And He has died for each and every one of us that we might have eternal life in Him. And that message, friends gets choked out by life so frequently. And if you can imagine the young faith of believers who are entering into a world that's not filled with the sort of coziness that we often experience, but a very real tension for what you believe may cost your life, for what you see and understand and believe and what you know deep within your heart might cost you something a little more than inconveniences. Friends, the, this very real challenge is the message that John has that comes from Christ, that comes from the angels, that comes from God Himself, comes from His Spirit that is for His people to energize their faith and call them to steadfast faithfulness and devotion to Christ alone. And so friends, it's with that introduction I want to read the opening of Revelation 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us, 
from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. Revelation opens for us as a sort of sense of this calling. This calling that we would be servants. John, he says, this is written to servants, and of which he calls himself also a servant of Christ. John places himself on equal footing with all of us. Now, the words there, servant, can also mean the word slave. But most translators have decided to run with the word servant because of all of the negative connotations with being a slave. We don't like those words to our ears, that we would be slaves of Christ. Better idea seems to be that we would be servants. But John takes time to cultivate the positive nature of what it means to be a servant of Christ. And I want us to consider, do you consider yourself a servant of Christ? In the ancient world, it was common for us, uh, or it was common for people to serve higher, uh, higher uh, up people, higher status symbols or whatever. And it was actually a privilege if they were serving an honorable person. It was a good, positive thing. The question for Christians is, who is it that we are serving? And it's always that question that sort of per, uh, pervades through the book of Revelation. Who is it that I'm serving? And it's a question that as we study through the book, I will frequently propose to us and say, who is it that we are serving and what is John calling us to? What sort of faithfulness and devotion to Christ do we need? And so in the ancient world, if you think about um, how, Ro how people ended up in slavery, if you think about it from the Roman perspective, some masters, they acquired slaves by purchase. They would, they would just simply buy them, and they would bring them uh, a part of their, their household. But for the Christian who is a servant, who is a slave, God purchased us through, through Christ, through his blood. For a Roman, they would acquire slaves by conquering militarily over people. They would sweep into a city, they would ransack it, and they would take people, and they would submit them into service. Um, I think that this is how oftentimes they ended up becoming sort of gladiators in the Colosseum. They would become a part of the spectacle, and they would take them and bring uh, militarily, they would force them into these situations. We, looking at our lives in Christ, we have been attained not through military conquest, but self-sacrificial love of our Savior. Christ calls us into service, not militarily overpowering, but by his overpowering of sin and death and redeeming and saving us. For a Roman with a slave, they must obey. There is no freedom. 
And while we are called as servants of Christ to obey, we are truly free. Since Christ has set us free from sin and death and from the law. We are servants, but as the scripture has pointed us to, we also reign as kings. We have freedom and we have life and we have hope in Jesus. And so it's not this servant and slave mentality of the Roman and ancient world, and it's not this negative connotation, but it's this beautiful picture that we have been redeemed and saved and set free to be servants of Christ in the name of Christ. And the book of Revelation calls us, uh, in these opening chapters, it calls us a kingdom and priests that we would be servants in the kingdom of Christ, and that we would be servants as priests. Now in the ancient world, in the Old Testament, in Israel, uh, the priests, they had a job to do. And their job was sin management. Their job was to make sure that for the people of Israel, that there was no outstanding sins, that they might go and be heard by God, and that they might be atoned for, and that there might be the mercy of God over the people. This was a constant, ongoing thing in the life of Israel. We know and we believe and we understand, looking back on history, we see Jesus Christ as the perfect sacrifice. And Hebrews teaches us that it was the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. That in Christ we have had our sins atoned for now and forevermore in the perfect sacrifice of Christ. This fulfilling and complete sacrifice. So then the question becomes, how do our responsibilities change as priests in the kingdom of God? And by the way, this is a hot-button issue. If you grew up in a Catholic tradition, this is an important scripture to teach us that all of us are priests in the kingdom of God. I'm vastly superior, remember that. But all of us have a place in the kingdom of Christ. All of us have a place of service and worship and glorifying God. All of us have a role to play. This is a pivotal issue where we understand our placement in Christ and his kingdom, that we are all kingdom, a kingdom of priests and service of God. And so the question becomes, what is your role as a priest in the kingdom of God? If there's no longer the need to manage sin, if there's no longer the need to sacrifice an animal and, and uh, you know, do all of the blood ceremony and all of that crazy stuff, wouldn't that make for an interesting Sunday? What's our role? To worship. Think about Romans 12.1. And just get a sense of what Paul is calling us to. In Romans 12, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, that in view of God's mercy, well, what's God's mercy but his love poured out for us on the cross, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And the challenge then is, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. It becomes this sense of worshiping God. 
And what the servants end up doing in the book of Revelation is they offer worship and they offer praise, they offer prayer, they offer service to the, uh, to the saints. They care for one another, they love one another. The role of the servant is to praise God, is to pray, and to serve the church. To be a kingdom of priests is to seek the will of God, to love His people, to offer prayers and praises. And all throughout our, our study, we will see what the, uh, the praises that happen on earth are this sort of beautiful smell before the nostrils of God. That as we love and care for one another, it offers this spiritual sacrifice to God. We aren't in the sin management business anymore. We're in the business of praying, of caring, of loving, of offering our bodies as spiritual sacrifices for glory and honor and praise to God. You belong in the kingdom of Christ. You are a priest in the kingdom of Christ. And you have work to do. It's these reminders that we need throughout this text that we are serving something greater than ourselves. And John puts himself on equal footing, saying, I am a servant right along with you. And so John is beckoning to us, and he is disclosing to us. The word revelation means full disclosure. And John is pulling back the curtain, and he's trying to paint for us a worldview and understanding of how we are to look at ourselves. And what he does foremost is he paints a picture of who Christ is. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the king over all of the earth. And these are the attitudes that we need to have as Christians in our world. We're going to need the reminder every once in a while of where we put our faith and our trust and our devotion. Who feels tempted to put their faith and hope in something of the earth to solve their problems, to work through their lives. We need the reminder that it's not in quick fix gratification. It's not in it's not in government. It's not in um, it's not even within. And this is the most popular thing I think today is this sort of I can do it myself. That we can find what we are looking for by pulling up our own bootstraps and thinking the right thoughts. The God over all of creation is not self. The God over creation is not any particular ruler. The God over all of creation, the King of all of the earth, is Jesus Christ. And we need that reminder. We need that disclosure when the world is bearing down on us and we forget who we are in Christ. And John, he points us to who Jesus is. It's in verse 5, And Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then he helps us see who we are. To him who loves us, to him who has freed us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be kingdom and priest, to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. There are a couple of things. That all seems fairly clear. There are a couple of things that are difficult in our opening text. The first is in the opening verse. 
the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Where do you think all the confusion is in chapter 1, verse 1? What word is it that jumps out to you as problematic? I'm trying to engage you so you stay with me here. What's the troublesome word there? Soon. What on earth does he mean by soon? Throughout Scripture, that word is used for immediacy. It's like if you were looking for the word to say, we're going, you know, we're going out the door right this moment, you would use the Greek word there, soon. And so then the question becomes a few things. Does John get it wrong? Did he, you know, did he hear did he hear Jesus wrong when he was getting all the instructions? Was it really soon? Because last I checked, you know, it's been a it's been the better part of 2000 years since it's written. And I don't see a new heaven and a new earth and I don't see God dwelling here with us. So, it leads me to think maybe John got it wrong. Maybe John misunderstood. I don't think you want me to read all of the commentaries to you. I think you just want maybe a quick, easy solution, and I'll offer it to you, all right? Here's what I think is going on with the word soon. It is immediacy. It's the immediacy of what is to come. It's to expedite faithfulness. It's a nod towards the relevance of what is written. And here's what I mean. Imagine for the audience, John receives the word. Write this down of what must take place 2,500 years from now. It's common sense for us that they wouldn't pay attention to it. Well, I won't be here. Who cares? By using the word soon, I think John is creating an immediacy of the relevance of the message. That we don't ignore the fact that Jesus Christ could return right this very second. That if they put a far distant date on Christ's return, not that that was even the purpose of it, we would ignore it. We would treat it like freshmen in our orientation class on the first day of college that says our paper is due on March 21st. Well, we don't work on it on January 1st. We work on it on March 20th, right? And that is the case in every instance of our lives where if we can put it off, we most certainly do. And I believe the message of Revelation is so immediately relevant to each and every one of us for all time because it is a call to a deep devotion and faithfulness to Christ. In a world where it is so easy for us to give up and to give in, Revelation is calling us to a faithful to the one true King. Friends, the word soon is not meant to be ignored, glossed over, and explained, dismissed as crazy. It is a word that should strike you right in the midst of your heart that tells you now is the moment to give my faithfulness to Christ. 
because I don't know what tomorrow will bring. I don't know what the next minute will bring. All I know is Jesus Christ is faithful, and he is calling me to be a part of his family. He has died for me. He's redeemed me, and I belong to this family, and I want to give it all that I have and everything that's in me, and I don't want to give up, and I don't want to give in. So I don't dismiss the word soon. I embrace it because it is the source of hope that lets me press forward knowing that tomorrow might be the day that Christ returns. Tomorrow might be the day that our tears are washed away. Tomorrow might be the day that suffering is no more. And I want to be on the side of Christ. So I don't ignore it. I cling to it. And as I reflect on this text and I thought I think more and more about the world we live in and what what sort of wrestling match we are in the world marches on trying to build its walls of division and protection and it's the servants of Christ who tear down the walls of division the walls of racism and sexism and nationalism and whatever one you want to add And while the world marches on in strife, it's the servants of Christ who offer grace and peace and reconciliation and forgiveness. In the world of political theater and jockeying for trust and power over people, it's the servants of Christ who praise the one true Lord, Jesus Christ. We fix our eyes on Him, not on the spectacle of Washington, but we fix our eyes on the cross and the spectacle of His sacrifice and His resurrection. We look to the One who is and was and who is to come. And while the world marches on in fear, it's the servants of Christ who worship in awe of the One who frees us from the fear of death. He holds the victory over our lives. While the world marches on, to a screeching halt and government shutdowns and power broking with our lives brokering with our lives the government may shut down its services but the servants of Christ live in an unshakable and unstoppable kingdom the kingdom of Christ the world it marches on while we patiently love and serve one day at a time we listen to our king and we serve him the world marches on but it is Christ who has won the victory we may look all around us and we may doubt we may feel insecure about what we believe we may not always see we may not always understand you may not have heard the good news for all it's worth. But like the Gospel of Mark, and I hope the, go- the Gospel of Revelation tells us the good news that Jesus is our Lord and our King. And you can have a place in His kingdom. Will you be a priest in the kingdom of Christ? Will you serve? Will you love? Will you pray? Will you praise? Will you give your heart fully to Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this day. 
We pray for your encouragement, for your strength, God, for each day that we would press forward in our faith. We would grasp this moment to say that you are our Lord and our King, that we would give you our lives and not give up, not give in to a world that pressures us into thinking so many different things about you or about the world and who's in control and who isn't. Father, you offer us life in your unshakable and unstoppable kingdom. And it will press forward no matter no matter what the kingdoms of the world do. Call us to faithfulness. Bring us to love and devotion to you and your scriptures and to your spirit that's at work in us. Let us see you and hear you and know you. May we see it in our love for one another. May we see it in your love for us. We thank you, God, for all that you do. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. May God bless you. May God keep you and shine his face upon you. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God and Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord. Before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you stand with us?